Yeah, Zodiac. I mean, it's one of my very favorite movies. And it's a movie that I have watched a lot. There's this, <laughs> randomly, there's this um, free TV app in the States called Pluto TV. Yes. And they, um, it's, it's like the main source of my entertainment these days. And they will get a movie. You can tell that they must have just gotten the rights because they'll get, get a movie and they'll play it a thousand times. Um, and Zodiac's been one of, it, it, not right now, but like a few months ago, it was one of the movies that they must have just signed up for so it's it's just been on my tv and just in my brain a lot <laughs> um, repeatedly like it just every time it's on i'll like put it on while i'm eating dinner so i've caught chunks of it here and there but like obviously i've seen it many times before that and um it's one of the movies that i have the most fond memories of seeing in the theater oh yeah um yeah yeah i have like i would say if someone was like rank your you know favorite movie going experiences like in the theater I think Zodiac would be like in my top three. I had a really oh, fascinating, amazing. yeah, I had a really fascinating and exciting experience watching it for the first time, which was, um, I grew up in like the middle of nowhere, Michigan. Uh, and I lived really far away from the nearest movie theater when I was growing up. We, we had a movie theater in town, but it, it only had three screens. So we didn't get a lot of, uh, you know, artsier or it yeah. mostly just got like the big blockbuster stuff. So if I wanted to see something like Zodiac, I had to drive a couple of hours. And I really wanted to see Zodiac because I was a big cinephile, even though I had very little <laughs> access to movies. And I, I knew, just I knew David Fincher and I knew it was gonna be great. So um, my little sister and I, she was much, she's five years younger than me. So what was this, 2007? So she would have been like 13 or something. Amazing. And um, yeah, yeah. And then my best friend, Holly, we were like, oh, we're gonna go. So we drove two hours to, to the <laughs> movie theater that was playing Zodiac and we got there and we were the only people in the theater. I, I don't remember if we saw it like in the middle of the day or something, or I don't, or if it just wasn't, I don't know, but yeah. And it made for a really fun time. Cause I actually, I'm somebody who usually, I actually like seeing movies with like a big crowd. Like yeah. I kind of get off of that energy, but like for some reason, so when we first walked in there, I was kind of like, oh, this sucks. Like, it's just going to be us. <laughs> um, but it ended up being the perfect experience because since there was nobody else in there, we still got the full cinematic, you know, the big screen and the theater and the popcorn and everything. We still had the big cinematic experience, but we, I think because it's such a slow burn movie, it, I don't know that it would have like played super excitingly with an audience no, anyway. It, especially, it did it yeah. in the audience I was with, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> and especially in super like small town Michigan, like it just, that's not like the right crowd really for <laughs> stuff like this. And so, um, yes, yeah, so it was really fun to be just the three of us because we just like vibed on the movie. <laughs> yeah. the whole time. We, I mean, we like talked out loud if like something was scaring us <laughs> or like, you know, it was one of the first times I remember like yelling at the screen, especially <laughs> the part when Jake Gyllenhaal's in the basement with the, with the guy with the signs and we were like, scream and we were literally like you know just yelling out loud and we just had like so much fun with it and yeah it was a really special moment for the three of us i think and it was cool because i got to like sneak my little sister into an r-rated movie because she Amazing. was just like, a baby basically and yeah and we just like we loved it so much and i remember um yeah like when it came out on dvd and stuff i bought it right away so i've, I've seen this movie so many times <laughs> <laughs> And really kind of feeding off of that that first experience just being so like memorable for me. Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Fincher's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt, the film of course stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, Anthony Edwards, and so many more. I'm your host, Blake Howard, this is the 17th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Virgo, Part 1. And our introduction today was from contributing editor for Nerdist, friend of the show, Lindsay Romay. Before we dive into the theme of the week in the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening and also share the show on whatever socials you use because it's a huge help to find and attract those fellow lovers of our brand of obsessive cinematic deep dives. I also want to let you know that links to our Patreon with a weekly Rum and Rant podcast and special uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews, as well as links to our merchandise with artwork by the incredible Brianna Ashby and also Amy Reid are in the show description or at oneheatminute.com. Now, joining me to see how Don Siegel would have done it 
are Zodiac screenwriter James Vanderbilt. A man who consistently delivers the most involving and affecting characters to a myriad of films and television, including Fargo, Shutter Island, The Invitation, and obviously this film, Zodiac, the incredible John Carroll Lynch, host of the Prog Save America podcast, the creator of A Year With Women, and Noir Vember, Mariah Gates. Editor-in-chief of Fangoria, Phil Nobile Jr., New York Times bestselling author, James Patterson collaborator, Ned Kelly award winner, Australia's premier crime writer, Candace Fox. Writer and director of The Trouble with the Truth, contributor to the American cinematographer, filmmaker, and really the best screening moderator in Los Angeles and probably the greater US, Jim Hemphill. Art director, writer, and creator of the cinephile a card game, Corey Everett. Former long-running editor of Time Out New York, Editor, critic, writer for hire with bylines at the New York Times, Sight and Sound, Empire, a Zodiac true believer, the legend, Joshua Rothkopf. Internet movie news trailblazer, editor-in-chief of DarkHorizons.com, the man machine, my dear friend, Garth Franklin, also joined by another dear friend, the chief instigator of our brand of cinematic deep dives, my dear friend, Stu Coote, and... We also have some newcomers to Zodiac Chronicle, but not necessarily to One Eight Minute Productions. New York-based film and theatre maker, when he isn't writing criticism of many kinds, Danny Bowes. When I finally like like watched Zodiac on its own terms again and wasn't like you know just fully engaging with what it was, it and this is when the Dirty Harry stuff comes up. Uh, later this plays directly into it but it was very interesting to watch somebody who is so associated with um, you know like being a control freak and asserting that total control over his films engaging with a story that requires relinquishing of control because there's no closure to it Yes, it's completely open ended like nobody fucking knows who the Zodiac killer was like people are like well, I mean, you know, it's like, even then it's like, there are still like holes in that. Like there's never been definitively uh, solved. And that has to drive a control freak fucking crazy. <laughs> and finally, staff writer at WBR's The Artery and contributing writer at North Shore Movies. This man has bylines at The Village Voice, the Boston Herald, RogerEbert.com. He is my friend, my favorite Bostonian in the world. Sorry, Ben. Sean Burns. Oh, the movie splits every indie guy from the 90s. Like when James LaGros shows up, you're like, oh, of course. <laughs> Listen. No, I mean, that movie was cast out of a Sundance party in 1996, <laughs> right? I mean, the Dermot Rowney fat is nothing compared to the Anthony Edwards rug, though. I mean, that thing is a monstrosity. For the, most, the most fastidious filmmaker, and he's just collecting this ridiculous Burt Reynolds 1982 <laughs> stroke race toupee. <laughs> Every episode, we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme. This sequence of the film drops Dave Tosky into a scenario where Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood co-op the story of Zodiac to do what only pop culture can. Give a satisfactory, if slightly fascistic, conclusion. So why fight the inevitability of the theme of the week? This week's theme, of course, can only be... Dirty Harry. left off after searching the disgusting and rodent-infested trailer of Arthur Lee Allen and the profound disappointment that the slovenly, lumbering suspect did not match any of the required handwriting or physical evidence to be locked up. Dermot Mulroney's Captain Marty Lee tries to get Dave Tosky, Mark Ruffalo, out of the quagmire of frustrated despair that he finds himself in before making a suggestion to see a movie. 
Now, to remind you of the events that we discussed in the last episode, here's John Carroll Lynch describing his first day on set. The first day of work I had was um, showing up at the mobile home in the, uh, okay. uh, the, the big man in short shorts and a tiny car. <laughs> yes. uh, nothing, nothing better than, a, you know, um, um, what do I, uh, Madras shorts and a <laughs> Carmen Ghia for a guy my size, you know. Look, to, they were just showing off those lovely pins um, of yours, John. It just, it just, <laughs> it completely diminishes the danger of the character, which is fantastic. Anyway. Yes. He does it, mate. Um, that was my first day, so. Before we dive into the scene proper, here's Jim Hemphill describing that the appearance of effortlessness in the work of great directors is actually quite the contrary. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, it's funny. I, I hate when people refer to me as a critic because I don't, I'm not really a critic. I'm a, you know, I think of myself more as a film historian and enthusiast. However, I did work as a critic for about a year in 2000, from 2006 to sometime in 2007 was the one time in my life when I was a critic uh, and Zodiac was a movie I reviewed. And so I saw it uh, a couple days before its theatrical release at a press screening. And I very vividly remember seeing it and having, and having the same reaction you had where I was just blown away by it the first time. And in terms of immediately recognizing it as kind of, you know, everybody talks about the 70s in American cinema and it being this golden age. And I'm I'm not necessarily one of these 70s fetishists. You know, I think every decade and every, you know, every decade has its great movies. Every decade has its terrible movies that we forget about 15 years later because they don't stay with us. I mean, believe me, the 70s, you know, I, w- I was alive. There were plenty of uh, <laughs> really, really crappy movies in the 70s. And, you know, and I think they're great movies now. However, I do think certain eras do certain things better and the 70s certainly was good for a certain kind of filmmaking that i think did break a little bit out of the traditional structure of of what kind of satisfactions had to be met in the audience and zodiac there were a couple things you know when i saw it and obviously fincher tips you off to it right from the beginning by using the parent the old paramount logo so you you know he's he's sort of trying to say you know both this movie is in that style and also maybe i think you know he's trying to make it like you know well this is this is like a movie you 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 if if they had made a movie about this at the time it was happening it would be this movie you know yeah so so he kind of tips you off to it but i think um one of the things i remember very vividly about seeing it in the theater that kind of gave me that vibe of it being you know in the sort of uh conversation clue all the president's men kind of tradition uh was the david shire score and i mean at the time you know and i'm a huge david shire fan at the at the time you know that was such an ingenious choice of finchers because shire had really been kind of out of the the studio mainstream for decades i mean he he was you know he, he had always been working but you know he hadn't done like a major wide theatrical release since the late 80s when he did you know he did like vice versa and monkey shines around 87 or 88 and you know but in the 70s i mean he did some of the most iconic scores around you know the conversation take me column one two three straight time i mean obviously all the president's men yes and that score you know having david shire score the movie i thought really uh that was just a great way of kind of tipping the hat to that era of filmmaking and that tradition um you know as well as it just being a movie that you know, this this whole idea when people say, well, it has no ending. I mean, that's just such a that that's one of those things when someone says that I, I feel sorry for that person because I know that they're an idiot. I mean, <laughs> the movie, the movie does have an ending. It does have it does have a climax. I mean, I mean, Mark Ruffalo and Jake Gyllenhaal having that acknowledgement that in their minds, they've solved it. It's just the rest of the world isn't necessarily going to know and and justice isn't necessarily going to be served. But from their point of view, there is a a kind of triumph. I mean, it's not the triumph of blowing up the Death Star, but there is this kind of, on the terms this movie has laid out, where it is a film, is a reality-based film about the way these things really work, that's kind of the real triumph you're going to those guys are going to get and now let's get to the scene you know it takes some time off 
Spend some time with your wife and the kids. Go to Candlestick. See a movie. The city of San Francisco. I will enjoy killing one person every day until you pay me $100,000. If you agree, say so tomorrow. Morning. In personal column, San Francisco Chronicle. And I will set up meeting. If I do not hear from you, it will be my next pleasure to kill a Catholic priest or a... Scorpio. We're inside a packed cinema. The voice of John Vernon's mayor is reading the taunts from a killer in an alternate San Francisco. This is a police screening of Don Siegel's Dirty Harry. A scene that perverts the kind of quintessential Spielbergian awe. Where you look at the faces of people in the film, looking at something, and diving into their emotional reaction. For this audience, we can assume that there's a distracting proximity to the case. However, that proximity does not deny the riveting quality and probable disbelief that Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood had the stones to tackle this film in San Francisco at this moment in time. Ruffalo's Tosky is isolated. This opiate quality of Dirty Harry seems to have a hold on even Captain Marty Lee, even Mrs. Tosky herself. And Tosky's stylish bow tie starts to constrict and contract like a noose, and he has to escape. Gyllenhaal's Graysmith clocks the disturbance in the riveted crowd and immediately empathizes with Tosky. What an unimaginable predicament. The arcing pan as Tosky passes the refreshments and descends down the steps puts him right in the crosshairs of the Dirty Harry standee before a quick cut to his smoking vantage. Here's James Vanderbilt, with a revelation about the use of Dirty Harry in Zodiac, Sean Burns, Phil Nobile Jr. and Danny Bowes, contrasting Dirty Harry and Zodiac, and finally, the great John Carolyn sharing how grateful he is for Siegel and Eastwood's uncompromising portrayal of vigilantism. Clint Eastwood wouldn't let us use his face. So that's, that's why, if you watch the movie, you never see Dirty Harry because it was. We originally wrote it that he was going to be sitting. Toski was going to be sitting in the film, and you were going to see the scene as "Do you feel lucky, punk?" and he blows his head off. And we sent the script to Clint, and it was a Warner Brothers co-production. And yeah. Clint famously is a Warner Brothers guy. He's, He's been on the lot for years, and Clint said, "Absolutely not. There's no way." And we were like, "Oh no! Like, how can we?" And Warner Brothers said, look, we own Dirty Harry. You can use Dirty Harry. Just can't use Clint Eastwood. And we said, how are we not going <laughs> to use Clint Eastwood? They said, well, if you want it, you know, it's it's up to you. And so it's it's in the movie, it's um, a wonderful character actor who reads the letter and goes, Scorpio. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then, but if you watch Zodiac in the lobby, there's a giant Dirty Harry stand-up behind Tosky, and the frame cuts him off at the head. So you never see Clint Eastwood's <laughs> Zodiac because you refused it. That's funny because so you only see you only see the legs of Clint on the big cardboard standee, but I thought that was like a, a symbol of Tosky being dwarfed by the fake movie version of himself. <laughs> no, I think it's funny because it turns into this total hall of mirrors because you got to remember that like Tosky was the inspiration for Bullet. Yes. <laughs> McQueen, so you have the the real cop who inspired the movie cop, and then there's a different movie cop who's just outshone him. Then you remember, I'm like, well, I'm not even watching the real guy. I'm watching Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark Ruffalo just happens to like crazily look like the real Dave Tosky, and he's got the he's got the bow tie, and yeah, no, it is it is a great. But he's acting like Peter Falk, which yeah. is so weird. <laughs> I thought he would do a McQueen bullet <laughs> thing, but the whole time he's playing Columbo, like he even gets the coat at one point. <laughs> Well, you can tell with the, the robe, yeah, that scene later when it turns out he's been like 
writing fake fan letters about his character in Tales from the City. <laughs> All I could think of was like the scene in The Insider when Pacino's like, did you say that you won a judo competition? <laughs> Yeah, I think I think the film does a great job of of uh, pointing those references out. Yes, but it's also it's also very much enjoying uh, being a contrast to those, right? Yes. And and I see that in a couple of places. I, and I and this was in the piece, so if I'm repeating myself, you know, sorry. Um, the I think it's it's fin it's Fincher's own answer to what he created, if not started, with Seven, um, where Seven is a very you know, uh, exciting, thrilling cat and mouse. And, you know, Morgan Freeman looks around the room and he just knows shit. Like this movie, <laughs> this movie absolutely relishes taking the piss out of Fincher's previous work, right? Because it's like, no, that's not how that works. And, 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 <clears throat> and it does the same thing with Dirty Harry in, in, a, in a much lesser way. But the idea that, that the Scorpio killer in Dirty Harry is based on on the zodiac, down to the the astrological connection uh, in the name and the the school bus, which happens in the third act of Dirty Harry. And Dirty Harry's kind of like I love Dirty Harry, but it's it's pretty much a, a, a pro fascism story because <laughs> because it it spends all of its time telling you that that due process and following these rules is for suckers, and that's how the killer gets away. And sadly, that's the same fucking message of Zodiac. But Zodiac <laughs> is not going to cross that line and say, and, and that's bad. You know, Zodiac, <clears throat> Zodiac's got a more human point of view about it. It's, it's not saying, it's it's saying that following this process, following this, this due process and, and, and the letter of the law uh, is not going to get you your killer. But Zodiac's a little more pragmatic and existential about it. I think it's just, it tells you that that's, that's the way it is. And, and it's more interested in exploring what happens when you have to live with that. What happens when you have to spend, get up every day and feel like I'm almost positive who this killer is, but I can't do anything about it. <laughs> and I'm also not 100% positive. And sometimes I think about that other 5%. Um, it, and Zodiac uses uh, those kind of facile pop culture touchstones, which again, include include Fincher's own work, uh, Seven and and, uh, and Dirty Harry to, to sort of juxtapose how unglamorous and unsexy and sort of unsatisfying the actual day-to-day -day police work is. Because one of the things that the, the, the sources of the suspense in Dirty Harry, which they took directly from the real life case, was the interactivity between the killer and the, you know, the, the authorities through media which is something that you know at that time it wasn't as commonplace as it is now because it's now like you can talk to like you know you can log on to twitter and like you know have real-time interactions with people like that you know this is you know long before those days um but through the medium of the san francisco chronicle like you know the zodiac killer and the you know and the cops are like you know kind of having interplay which is something that I think at the time, I don't, I don't think it was completely unprecedented, but I think that there wasn't really anything on that scale, like any kind of case where that had happened. The only time in the past that it had ever happened that is sort of recorded and 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 also adopted by popular culture is Jack the Ripper. Like, um, and, and oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's such a tenuous uh, link potentially, even with the Jack Jack the Ripper was the person who was writing to the papers the same guy as was. The person who was committing the murders that cannot be verified obviously because there's no sort of definitive right. truth either way but it's 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 that that was like the last time in western society that that kind of interaction was happening and then now sort of what kicks off the age of the serial killer if you like in the united states is this interaction yep. and it's appropriate that it's on the same scale in terms of the cultural legacy and impact that it's had but yeah and that was that serving almost sort of like as the engine of the plot of the movie because it's always like scorpio sends a letter to the chronicle clint eastwood has to go do a thing uh it all goes to shit and then scorpio places another thing in the paper and then clint has to do another thing and everything goes to hell 
And then finally at the end, you know, Clint's just like, fuck this and just like lights him up, you know, <laughs> which you, but, the, but you, in a very real way, like the plot of the movie is structured around that interplay between, you know, between them through the medium of the paper. So, I mean, that is like kind of the essence of what makes this what it is kind of. But the, the thing that really struck me about watching Dirty Harry again for this was how tightly controlled it is as as uh, as a movie like it is one of the just just the leanest just most it just exquisitely minimalist there is no fat on the bone whatsoever it is all action it is all portent it is all like you know moving ever forward it's just this tight perfectly controlled piece that has closure at the end Yes. which is like which is the ultimate fantasy of this thing because even by that point like it had just been a couple of years at that point before when they made i think what what was it like the initial couple killings had happened when they made dirty harry it wasn't like there there, there were still way more that happened in the real case after the movie right there was a lot more newspaper interactions there was a lot more claims of killings i killed a cop I've done this. I've killed right. 35 people, but, but the narrative is, extended past it. Right? Yeah. The, the narrative extended yeah, 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 way beyond yeah. the movie, but the actual killings happened. And that's kind of the myth of the, and even, even Paul Avery, like, right. you know, it's not subtext, it's text. Like Paul Avery's like, this guy killed five fucking people. More people die on a commute every year. Like who cares? Right. Yeah. All he did was write a few letters. And so that was like how he was rationalizing, you know, he, you know, his demise was like, we all drank the Kool-Aid and that was, that was a bad idea. But I, I think in this, um, you're, you're spot on. It's like, they literally captured that zeitgeist moment, that thing that made him national news, which is the, you know, I'm gonna shoot the little kids out of the um, out of the school bus and and mm. turned that into the biggest, into the biggest part of the movie, The Engine. And like you said, it's so lean. Like it's the first killings, you're in the eyes of the serial killer and then you're in the eyes of Harry and then you're back in the eyes of the serial killer and then you're in the eyes of Harry and then you're in the eyes of the killer and the eyes of Harry and then it's, right. it's done. It's, it's, and it's it's one of the first movies that was cut in the way that we were accustomed to seeing movies cut before. Yes. Because there was such like a looser style of cutting that prevailed before you know, the early 70s. You know, it's like, and I mean, Dirty Harry, people, you know, I mean, it's politics are problematic to say the least. You know, it's like, and it's like, you can't, you can't like not concede that because it's like, it's there and it's, you know yeah it's it's based on a desire to control things that extends to a level that's a lot more sinister than david fincher liking to have control over you know shooting a lot of takes and having a neat, <laughs> nice little neat ending i mean it's like dirty harry does creep like it, it does tap dance a bit in the the the, the, the fascism side of defense you know oh yeah but the thing is, though, is that it was reflecting a desire in large parts of the culture, you know, at large, which was things are kind of spiraling out of control. The old world that we once knew, like not very long before, is gone forever. What is this chaotic new world that we don't recognize at all? And there was this very prevalent desire to wrap everything up in a neat little bow and have control over it and have Clint Eastwood be able to go shoot the guy in the end, rather than just sort of like, you know, sweat bullets, you know, like a, you know, a cheap cup of coffee about, you know, it's like, oh, I almost had, you know, it's like, yeah. you don't <laughs> almost want to have him, you want to have him, you know? Yeah, he's he, he's an engine for wish fulfillment. Yeah, yes. you know, yeah. he's dirty Harry, because he's the guy's willing to get his hands dirty. And it's like, whoa, uh, that's is that really what's net? Is that what you want? Or is that what you need? You know, it's like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I mean, and having this feature so prominently in Zodiac, a movie about not having that closure and not having that control is such a fascinating counterpoint because it's acknowledging it's this almost like gesture of envy on Fincher's part where it's like he's pointing at this like, oh yeah, it's this neat Hollywood movie where everything's wrapped up in the end. It's like, wouldn't that be nice? And it's like, you know, and it's not subtle, you know, but you know, fuck subtlety. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's like, it's, it's true, you know, it's like, so why not, you know? But that that's, the, it, you know, that's another thing when we were talking earlier about like my first sort of impressions of the movie before they kind of coalesced into the broader understanding that I have now 
is that that felt wedged in the first time I watched it and I wasn't really appreciating everything, but it is so organically the center of uh, of everything that Zodiac is. It's like, it would be so nice if this was that, but it's yeah. not, you know? And, and, you know, and now it's like, it's almost like Dirty Harry within Zodiac is almost like, you know, the peach pit, you know, and the, and Zodiac <laughs> is, is the peach kind of, you know. Well, you know, all of, I mean, the ones, I mean, he even makes fun of them in the film, doesn't he? I mean, he, he you know, Toski became Bullet, right? Yeah, and yes. Toski also became Dirty, Dirty Harry. Harry. And uh, the difference between t Dave Toski and, and Harry Callahan is so drastic, oh. so severe as to be cartoonish, right? I mean, um, in the Dirty Harry movies, you know, the only, it's the old saw, you know, the only person who can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Yes, and uh, and at least in Dirty Harry, um, the adage is a little bit turned to being the only person who can stop a bad guy with a gun is another bad guy with a gun. Yes, because Harry Callahan's horrible; he's a horrible man. <laughs> yes, and to Clint Eastwood's credit, he doesn't clean him up. No. Now it is fascistic energy. It's no doubt. It's it's got a sense of righteousness. It's got a sense of uh, I know that I don't need rules because I know what's right and wrong which gets everybody in a lot of trouble. Yes. And um, and so, you know, I agree. I agree in, in, in general that that is something that Fincher was completely aware of. Everybody in the movie is following a procedure. Yes. They have rules to follow and they don't. And the difference between them, with the exception of Graceman, and the difference between them and the Zodiac is he doesn't follow any rules. No. Um, Dave Toskey does, um, you know, um, Mullinax, uh, um, does, uh, they all have rules to follow. Uh, but, uh, but, um, the Zodiac doesn't and Graysmith doesn't because Graysmith has no role to play No. in the, he is obsessive about it. That's all. Killer gets shot in the chest. And that's how the that's how it ends. Do I know you? I'm uh, Robert Gracemith. I work at the Chronicle with Paul Avery. Dave Tosky, nice to meet you. Dave, uh, Harry Kelly did a health job in your case. Yeah, no need for due process, right? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What do you do at the Chronicle? I'm a cartoonist. That's nice. You're gonna catch him. Tell him, I already make you movies about it. It feels so suited to Grace Miss Experience represented in the film that the most torturous moment in Dirty Harry is him hearing the chants of children on the bus. You can see that he's triggered to the extremity of his own anxiety about allowing his son to ride the bus to school, but he stays until the end. He needs to see how it ends. He likes puzzles. There's an awkward exchange that follows between Graysmith and Tosky, and there's a fatalistic finality in their final first words. Graysmith assures Tosky that he's gonna catch the Zodiac, and Tosky replies, they're already making movies about it. As if to say the danger, the urgency, the threat of the Zodiac has diminished enough for the case that has occupied now years of his prime to be relegated into movie script fodder. Zodiac Chronicle hasn't litigated the differences between the theatrical and director's cut of Zodiac as part of our deep dive due in large part to the fact that the differences are largely imperceptible. 
If we've addressed it at all, I've often queried how Paramount could possibly want to nitpick with Finch's choices when the release strategy for the film clearly stumped them. One of the notable changes though between the readily available theatrical version streaming in places like Netflix and the physical disc of the director's cut is the transition that happens right now at the conclusion of what we've just heard. In the theatrical cut, the screen fades to black. There's a soundless void for several seconds before it reads four years later. In the director's cut, when the screen fades to black, time passes with a tapestry of significant events expressed in audio and in the final seconds as it wraps up about a minute long suite four years later punctuates the point so here's the audio of the director's cut for you guys to listen to and decide what your preference is before we hear from mariah gates raving about her opinion that the director's cut is essential Jim Hemphill praising this moment in the context of the film structure and speaking to April Wolf's brilliant point from a previous episode. Before Corey Everett talks about Zodiac as Finch's transition movie and actually his preference for the jarring fade to black in the original theatrical cut. We today have concluded an agreement to end the war and bring peace with honor in Vietnam. Charles Manson for the Tate LaBianca mass murder. Pleaded guilty in the Chowchilla kidnapping. Today, the murder trial of Juan Carrot. Well, Chairman Mao died today. An absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Hostility and to launch against waves. Now led to the death of 50,000 Americans and several hundred thousand Patricia Hearst was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Stand up together, say no more. Sanctions to put an end to apartheid. Your Declaration of Independence spread that. Americans admire the United Kingdom. Mr. Harper has disappeared. We have no information Despise our own government. That the police have captured a man whom they believe to be the son of Sam. And then, unfortunately, the streaming version is usually the theatrical. So then if you've asked people they've seen it, they're like, oh, yeah. And then you're like, did you did you watch the director's <laughs> cut? And they're like, no, I watched it on Netflix. And I'm like, okay, find the director's <laughs> cut. And they're like, but I've already seen it. And I'm like, but you you haven't already seen it. You haven't seen it properly. But that's another one that's like the you want to tell people to see it on the big screen, but you're like, wait, that's not even the best version. <laughs> version. That's what I want. Well, and the whole movie has such an interesting relationship to time, and and some other people on your podcast have talked about the different ways that he shows the passage of time and how interesting they are. You know, the building being built and and, and time lapse and stuff. And then there's that uh, sort of great audio time lapse after the Dirty Harry screening where suddenly he jumps forward four years just through music and news reports. The screen is like black and it's all just yeah. audio. And it reminds me, you know, there's a lot, this movie reminds me a lot. I would love to see a, I, there are two double, like two of my dream double features I would love to program would be this and American Graffiti and this and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I feel like there's so many interesting parallels between all those movies. And like certainly, you know, American Graffiti, obviously even, uh, there's sort of just right from the beginning with the, the shot of the diner and stuff. There's little visual things that are that are similar, and it was shot in a similar part, you know, similar part of the country, and all that. And the movie really uses music and news reports kind of similarly to the way American Graffiti uses them. And but he just it's such a bold choice to suddenly an hour and 40 minutes or whatever it is into the movie, just like go completely black for a couple of minutes. And, and it's almost, it's almost like it's, it's almost like an, an old fashioned intermission or something in the movie, but you're, but, but it's what, what April Wolf is saying is so true about the way his movies kind of reboot halfway through, you know, Gone Girl is like that too. Gone Girl, yeah. you know, it's like you're watching one movie and then all of a sudden, I mean, spoiler alert, you know, mute this for, 30 seconds as you've <laughs> never seen Gone Girl but there's that point where all of a sudden you learn that she's still alive and it yeah. becomes a totally different movie then for the next hour or so and then it has it basically Gone Girl is sort of like two acts in an epilogue it's yes. like the first act with him then there's the second act with her being alive and then when she comes back there's this sort of like great 
epilogue to the movie where they you you, you figure out what what the hell he's going to do with his life now that she's back and uh it's just really fat i mean it's just really fascinating and really bold and kind of these movies that fincher directs and you know and i do you know i do want to give a lot of credit to the screenwriters of these movies too uh again vanderbilt here gillian flynn's script for gone girl which you know somewhat closely follows her book is just amazing you know the girl with the dragon tattoo script by zalian is fantastic i mean i mean i mean that's the thing about like, with fincher there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point with him being one of the great directors well he's one of the great director because he's one of the great directors he gets the best scripts yeah you know? he gets, and then he gets that, some gets some pretty good off his, his scripts yeah i mean and so that perpetuates it a little bit but um but at the same time he is the guy who shoves these scripts through the system like i think a lot of these movies i don't know if they would be protected the same way if they were being directed by somebody who didn't have fincher's sheer force of will combined with his clout to say you know this is the way this movie should be i look at his career really in in two sections and and Funny enough, as weird as a comparison as this might be, I see Paul Thomas Anderson the same way. And yeah. I look at both filmmakers, Fincher and Anderson, I look at their 90s work as being, you know, these kind of young hot shots with a million ideas and all of this technical skill and whip pans and montage and Scorsese and, you know, all of their influences coming out and all of Fincher's, you know, music video and stylish experience coming out. And then I feel like for both filmmakers, there's a turn that happens. And I think for Fincher, it was after Panic Room and for PTA, it was after Magnolia and, and definitely into There Will Be Blood. But it was just like this decision of going, I'm not sure I want to be the kind of filmmaker who has to continue showing you every tool in my toolbox. And I think for PTA, it was, he completely changed his style of filmmaking and it became, you know, whereas his first three movies, you can just feel every shot lived in his head, you know, before he ever stepped onto the set and whether it was, you know, storyboarded or just kind of right there in his vision, his scripts were more or less executed and his movies were, you know, immediate and you know for him accessible and flashy in a way that appeals to a teenager young 20s you know as i was cinephile um and and fincher as well and i think there was a turn for fincher where he he did you know after panic room i guess thought about the kind of filmmaker he wanted to be and what's interesting about him is that it's not as if he stopped using some of his tools and technical abilities. He just decided he didn't want to show off anymore. And it's like he looked at a movie like All the President's Men and thought, I want to make a movie that feels like this. Now in Zodiac, there are still a couple shots that are a little showy, you know, the, the tracking shot of the cab, you know, on the street from overhead and you're kind of seeing it make these perfectly impossible turns and the camera's yeah. tracking with it or, you know, the building being assembled time-lapse. There's a couple moments that are, I, I'm going to put a flourish in here. But for the most part, he makes the effects in the movie invisible. And I don't know if you have seen the Digital Domain, which is the special effects house who did the video for Zodiac, but it was, you know, year or two after the movie came out i saw on youtube they'd put up a two or three minute clip of just here's our effects reel we worked on the movie zodiac and i have watched it a handful of times and i, I remember it. it was the first time that i saw somebody using these effects to do something that i would never notice instead of saying hey we made king kong come to life we made this explosion you're on this other planet it was <laughs> Mark Ruffalo is on this dark street and the street looks a little different now. So we painted the houses, you know, in the background of this shot to be more like they were, you know, in the year that this is set. And I never noticed any of these shots. And I think going forward in his career, he started to do stuff like that. And he, you know, does split screen to edit together the best performance from two actors. And he, you know, finishes the roof you know, on the set he's shooting in for a scene in Mank. You know, he does these things that mostly feel invisible to an audience. You know, yes. occasionally there's a, you know, Winkle, Winkle Vi moment <laughs> where he has one actor play two roles, which again, if you didn't know they weren't twins, 
I don't well, think for, you would notice for that. Some, for some people, it's like, who are those guys? Like, exactly. you leave the movie and you're like, that's not one person. But that's a totally different thing than I'm going to track all around this house with this impossible camera. I'm mm. going to, you know, go through this opening credits, through the barrel of the gun, up Edward Norton's, you know, nose or whatever. Um, I think that's a different kind of filmmaking. And I think there was kind of a decision for a cleaner, more classical style of filmmaking. I think for PTA, it was more going back to like a Turner classic movies. Like how did they do it in the fifties? How did John Huston do it? And for Fincher, it's, you know, seventies movies and Clute and all the president's men and, you know, Pakula and, which is not how you would describe his earlier movies. For me, I have a memory of the four years later title card. And I have I have two, two memories, actually. I have a memory of feeling like that, to me, was kind of the gut punch moment in the film. Yeah. Is when it feels like we're getting close and for that much time to have passed that it's it's actually slipping away. Is, yeah. is it the momentum that we've been building isn't actually going to the place that you thought? And feeling like that was initially one of the powerful moments in the movie. And so I'll tell you a second story, which is that I went to uh, the premiere of the director's cut, which they did at, um, film at Lincoln Center. Um, and David Fincher came and did a Q and A um, moderated by Kent Jones. And so this was, I believe the world premiere, um, you know, not like a red carpet thing, but just like for repertory nerds, whoever wants to come out, we're showing this. It's coming out on DVD uh, soon, but we're gonna screen it first. So I don't even believe you could read about, oh, well, you know, what's in the movie? Zodiac directors, you know, what's this gonna be? Um, and I remember going to the screening and a couple things. Number one, you know, you think the director's cut of a serial killer movie, you know, in the early 2000s, that would mean you're gonna see more, death you know, more gore, more, more stuff, more yeah. scares, more gross, whatever, um, because that's how they would sell DVDs. But of course, this was not that, and this is David Fincher. And so I remember basically most of the additions and the kind of a couple lines of dialogue here and there being fairly imperceptible uh, with the exception of the black screen audio montage, which I thought was a great idea on paper and one that inadvertently robbed me of the gut punch of the four years later title card coming up out of the blue. And yes. so I, I thought it was so interesting to go Oh, okay. Well, I can kind of see how that was a great idea. And then they were trying to shave a little bit off the movie. And so that had to go. And I think what accidentally happened is they ended up in a better place inadvertently making the title card hit so much harder. Whereas as much kind of detail and, you know, time passage that you can pack into that montage and as much care as I'm sure went into it and choosing just the right clips to explain, you know, what was going on, the passage of time. I was just like, oh, they just, they just kind of took away one of the great moments in the movie. I, I just think about it, it's like the, the, the match cut in 2001 that throws <laughs> yeah. up the bone and yeah. cuts to the spaceship. Be like, you know, but if you kept, you know, they kept the bone going and then we saw it land again. And then we pan up in this great seamless wonder. And then we get to the ship. It's like, well, that's cool. But what you sort of took away was that the cut was actually the thing. Got a great desk. Guy who used to work here was a great reporter. 
Yeah, I'm sure he was. I mean, it's an honor to leave the Chronicle and go work for the Sacramento Bee. Here to dream, right, Robert? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just right down there at the art department mm -hmm. if you need anything to help. After the black screen or audio news montage, depending on which version of the film you're watching, we arrive back at the San Francisco Chronicle four years later. The plaque yellow palette has been replaced with a royal Superman blue and typewriters to match. Adam Goldberg's Duffy Jennings takes his place at Paul Avery's former desk. We get to see how Graysmith has changed here, walking over to Jennings for an introduction. Goldberg's Jennings is a cosplay Avery, snarky, and patronizing. And this time around, you see Graysmith's default is a placating smile. He's got a vastly improved ability to read someone's quality. The next moment though, after this stilted introduction, is heartbreaking. So heartbreaking that the incredible Josh Rothkopf, Mariah Gates, Stu Coote, Garth Franklin and I need to join together to unpack it. It's fairness and dignity, and I find it very sad when I watch it again, the way that Fincher kind of traces with the presence of, of Anthony Edwards' character Armstrong. Like, we see that guy basically go from being his partner and handing him his animal crackers to to uh, to retiring or leaving, leaving the forest. Like, <laughs> yeah. like it's like it's almost like Toski's whole life has passed by, and, it, and it's like a couple of edits. Like, um, he's like, you can finally go and get the sea urchin. You know, you can finally go and get the Japanese food we've been wondering what it tastes like for so long or whatever. You know, it's sort of like you, you blink and a partner who you thought was in this or someone that you're the same age as you is, is leaving because your obsession is just beyond what most men would tolerate, yes. especially family men. And, 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 and Armstrong just, and that's the other thing is I don't, I've never, I've never thought of Armstrong's leaving as a betrayal. And in so many other rote films you see that archetype of the partner leaving it's done with a lot of like it's done with like a a sort of snide oh you know you're leaving you can't hack it but we're like right. oh god thank god bill got out right. like when he hugs his when he hugs his wife you're like thank god like at least he gets to, he hugged his wife bless his soul like he just wants to he wants to take his girls out he's got daughters he's got daughters and i feel like that's I mean, every single sh every single scene is something that I think Fincher probably had to fight for. The fact that he's including this, it says a lot. It says a lot in the sense that this he's kind of suggesting, I feel like, this is the only escape. The only escape would be to sort of bring it to a point of completion in your head, because it yes. won't happen in a courtroom or a jail, and then to walk out and to be with your daughters and your wife. Yes. Like, that, that might be the only sane way to leave. That's part of why I loved the original poster for Zodiac. Um, you know, the one with the fog and the, the bridge. bridge. The, and, and that bridge, like, is real foggy like that. It was just lovely. But the tagline, um, there's more than one way to lose your life to a killer, something like that. Yeah. And, and I think that is so eloquent because that's the thesis statement of the film. Like, you, you, you came for a movie about the Zodiac, right? But what you get is multiple character studies of these actors, these actors, what you get is multiple character studies of these people who for, on various facets are investigating and what investigating something so horrendous can do to you. And clearly, you know, one of the most bittersweet moments is is with um, Anthony Edwards' character where he, he just can't do it anymore. And he's gonna go like be internal investigator or something, which is like the worst. <laughs> yeah. Like it's so bad. This crime has been so bad on his mental health that he's gonna go do the worst job in the department so that he can just eat some sushi with his kids and watch them grow up. And it's like, it's this, he gets, I don't know, three lines and you're like, you've learned so much about him. Um, Cause Anthony Edwards is, like, is such a great actor. Unbelievable. But you're just like, you know, you deserve to eat sushi and watch your kids grow up. Like, good for you. <laughs> That's what we want. Um, yeah, it's and then you see how uh, everyone else's life, you know, like Paul's life completely falls apart. Um, 
Gyllenhaal's character gets divorced like three times or something. It's, it's fascinating. My friend actually, when I was obsessed with this book, so probably also 2008, she used to work at the Barnes and Noble in Emeryville, which is on the other side of the bridge. And um, Robert Graysmith came in one time and she, you know, rung him up and she, she didn't quite remember what his name, like why she knew the name. And it was because I was obsessed with these books, right? And then after he left, she was like, fuck, that was the guy who wrote Zodiac. Like, cause she would have gotten like a photo or something for me. Yeah. But it's nice to know that like Graysmith's still floating around San Francisco, or at least he was, you know, 10 years ago, buying books being a nerd like <laughs> he didn't completely lose his life to the zodiac i'm not giving up on it just yet oh fincher will be happy to know <laughs> no but it's, not a, it's not a joy to read like i could rewatch. Heat. i just i would just love to see like some of the filmmakers we talk about they're like what's stew thing yeah it just <laughs> have you got the word in yet yeah no i didn't, didn't like it oh fuck oh, oh fuck be like reading out the uh it'd be like the scene in chef when he reads out the review yeah, to everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gone the five dollar bill going back between from Nana's sweaty bosom. Hey, look, it had me at Mark Ruffalo's sideburns. Oh, oh yeah. Again, oh. as I say, this is his audition to play Colombo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. Trench coat, the hair, and, and the, so as even in the funny casting, it's like, um, like it's a joke. But Finch's saw Collateral, and so and talks about Ruffalo and saw him in Collateral and was just like. There's just something that he's doing in that movie yeah. that like made me all like just permanently like put him in my head as like this guy is like doing work like he is yeah. a technician and one of his guys and he's like he didn't even they didn't even know they thought we were gonna have to do a dumb wig they didn't yeah. even know that he could grow that just throw gorgeous out the curls the yeah. gorgeous yeah. Dave Tosky Colombo curls and he like came in and he's got the hair and they're like shit Ruffalo you it's, got the hair you, like, got, you got it all but he like. And that's, like, he's great, but then again, that's where the relationship, like, that with his partner, like, even the way his partner quits on him. That's a hard, it's hard. But it just doesn't ring true. Like, no one, like, there's a few of those, I always hate, like, in policing things where they're, like, someone gets, like, you'll have a very senior person that gets too invested in something. Mm. And then they're, like, oh, you just, you don't understand the system. And then you go, but hang on, we're to expect that you this is not your first rodeo like we recently had it in the movie army hammer's new film crisis is like this he does this big screaming thing like what's it all worth and mm. the system's corrupt and it, and he's like hey you work for the dea <laughs> you've probably been doing this for like been in law the system is corrupt but you're in we law created in, it but you're in law enforcement like the, the the biggest killer for all these sort of systems is probably more apathy than like so I hate these breakups like when he's like and then the joke of like oh maybe you can try your Japanese food now and he like he doesn't even laugh yeah see but it's uh, maybe it's I, Toski not being able to communicate with actual I, bodies I, like, I, yeah. I, I find that as like a tragic relationship it's like Armstrong is this like beating heart complete de beacon of decency and then you've got Toski who's like the man like he's in the zone like he's the dude and he's in his natural habitat like being on this chasing something down doing that and this gyre that he's like dragging them both into and this like never anything like armstrong comes to a realization like I, I literally can't live my life yeah, if i'm in this case yeah you're toxic i'm, go I'm done toxic. i'm done yeah. and so him leaving i i i see that line as like pure fatalism that's my like that's my like. I'm sorry, the goddamn chicken got overcooked. Um, you know, moment. It's, yeah. also, it's also probably the saddest breakup of the whole film. It is a, a terrible breakup. <laughs> like Chloe Sevigny leaving is like good. Like yeah, he yeah. doesn't need. Like I'm sorry, Graysmith, you don't need her in your life. Like your kids are better off without yeah. you there. I just think like if you've got two and a half hours, I think there's an easy, there's a better way to sell that. And you know, uh, it's just. There's something about it's not about the cell. I think it's about how it resonates. Oh, sure, yeah, just yeah. If it doesn't ring true if it, or not, if it doesn't ring yeah, true to you, that's and yeah. you, you've got a way unique take on that. So I never just no, 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 that. no, 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 because like you've got a level of detail and understanding about those actual relationships and how they, well, especially how they play out in real life in Australia. But it's like so, I you, I would love your, t I always love to hear your takes on that. But I think it's just about whether it resonates. And the more I watch, the more I watch Anthony Edwards, I'm just like, fuck, he's very good. He's like, just mm. effortless. You sure you don't want the car, Bill? It's your turn. Just drop me off at my place and take the car. You should keep the car. Yeah? I'm not coming in tomorrow. 
What, what, what's up? I'm done. I put in for a transfer. <clears throat> Where? Looking at fraud. I can't be on call anymore. I want to see these kids grow up. Good for you, Bill. You'll be okay. Yeah, I'll be fine. Hey, I'm not leaving you holding the bag on anything, am I? No. Okay. Hey, you know what? Maybe I have a chance to try your Japanese food, the raw stuff. Back in the home of Graysmith. Back in the home of the Collector. On the first date that never ended. I'm not Paul Avery. The boys need to be tucked in, please, and the baby needs changing. I'll flip you for it. You wish. Nobody has more Zodiac crap than you do. As always, the women can intuit what's about to happen next. And now for this episode's final word from her first-hand experience interviewing serial killers, Australia's premier crime writer, Candace Fox. It was a very dangerous time, <laughs> that whole era, particularly... Yes. Sort of California, like that whole area. You had the Golden State Killer, and you had the Night Stalker, and you had Zodiac a little bit later, and 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 oh, just scary to think about who was running around in that time. And and when I was talking to um, Lawrence Bittaker, um, you wouldn't believe how many killers he had personally encountered. You know, there was a guy named R- Richard Schupman who recently confessed to um, killing eight hitchhikers and he knew Lawrence and Roy uh, quite well. So it's like serial killers knowing each other. Depictions of serial killers in, in, uh, in uh, on film and fiction and that kind of thing. Um, it's the disappointment uh, because you expect them to be the Hannibal Lecter type guy and to own what they did. And certainly there's an expectation of intelligence yeah. because you can get away with killing more than once, you know, and if you can terrify an entire nation, it sounds as though you might be smart, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're not. And, uh, and he, he was a, just a really pathetic man miss you know i'm i'm such a misunderstood creature and uh you know he he but what was fascinating about him is he had a very interesting way of thinking about uh, or or framing his killing for me um he said to me you know what is unfair is that for 33 years in my life, I didn't hurt a fly. I, law-abiding citizen, lots of friends, everybody loves me. Yes, then I, I killed all these women. I had this little chapter, a phase in which I did this stuff. And I'm sorry to laugh, but just the word a phase, just this phase. phase. Yes, a chapter. I once had frosted tips, Candace, if you could believe it, yes, and that was a phase. He framed it though. That's how he was talking about it. He said, and the 38 years since, I, you know, same thing. I have lots of friends on the inside. I follow all the prison rules. I've never assaulted anyone in here. He said, so if you look at my life, you know, like a pie graph of my life, it's really just a tiny little slice in which I did these things. And it, and he's like, and it was only because I met the wrong person. I met Roy and it was his idea and I went along with it and all this. And you just think, 
this is some of the worst bullshit I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> just who would believe this? But of course, his, his four girlfriends or whatever um, that he had would believe it, that he's just misunderstood um, and not a, a raging psychopath, a horrible, horrible monster who did terrible, terrible things and is not sorry about them at all. That nightmarish story is the conclusion of the 17th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Virgo Part 1. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes. And if you can't get enough, Unplug Zodiac Sessions, which are the unedited interviews from all of our incredible guests, are going to be available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Patreon, which is also linked in the show notes and at oneheatminute.com. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard, Music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by the incredible Chris Duffy of Los Espinas. Thank you, The Duff. Our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac Chronicle pins and stickers were designed by the incredibly talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. Perfect. At the end of this episode, you heard Chloe Sevigny herself say, I Am Not Avery. So get one of those badges. Uh, wear it around, take a snap and tag us at OHM Pods on Twitter and we'll definitely share it or on Instagram. But until next time. Goodbye.